Good morning again. Welcome to the Lord's house and welcome to this time of instruction as we get up uh, close and personal to the Lord who has a word for us. And his word, as we read earlier in Psalm 19, is, is like honey dripping from the honeycomb. You know, it's intended to be a sweet, encouraging, you know, energy providing uh, kind of tool in our hands and, and not an oppressive expectation from an angry God who wants to judge as we sometimes cross the line and make it. So let's, uh, let's pray for this time and for this message and for those near and far. Gracious Lord, we ask for your favor as we open your word, as we uh, seek not to apply to somebody else's life and wish that they were here, but as we humbly realize, Lord, it, it has a message that's important and life-giving for me. Lord, bless me in my hearing. Uh, bless Pastor Howard in his teaching. Uh, grant that his words might be uh, faithful and true and that my heart might be receptive even to those things that are difficult to hear. Lord, this I pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we did in our opening, uh, you know, singing that song from the Andrews Sisters that was uh, uh, actually recorded in 1941, at the very same time, in a place called Cincinnati, Ohio, an assistant superintendent of public schools was concerned about what he saw going on in the educational system uh, of uh, his district. Uh, he was concerned that there was uh, a proposal about what an ideal student should be. And, and uh, he felt that in training towards that ideal, there could be a risk that individuality might be lost. And he was uh, very concerned that teachers would recognize that all students are not the same. That some will have proficiencies in this area, others will have proficiencies in that area. And so he wrote a fable. It, it's kind of a simple little thing, but it has uh, legs. It has lasted a long time. In fact, they made it into a children's book, and it still has truth that needs to be heard in every generation. I'm going to read it to you. It's called um, The Animal School, a fable by George Rivas, and here's how it goes. Once upon a time, the animals decided they must do something heroic to meet the world's problems uh, to meet the problems of a new world, so they organized a school. They had adopted an activity curriculum consisting of running, climbing, swimming, and flying. To make it easier to administer the curriculum, all the animals took all the subjects. The duck was excellent at swimming, in fact, better than his instructor. But he made only passing grades in flying and was very poor in running. Since he was slow in running, he had to stay after school and also drop swimming in order to practice running. This was kept up until his webbed feet were badly worn, and he was then only average in swimming. But average was at least acceptable in school, so nobody worried about that. Well, except for the duck. He was a little concerned. The rabbit started at the top of the class in running, but had a nervous breakdown because of so much makeup work in swimming. The squirrel was excellent in climbing until he developed frustration in the flying class where his teacher made him start from the ground up rather than from the treetop down. He also developed a charley horse from overexertion and then got a C in climbing and only a D in running. The eagle was a problem child. He was disciplined severely in the climbing class. He beat everyone to the top of the tree, but he insisted always on doing it his own way. 
the prairie dogs stayed out of school and they fought the tax levy because the administration would not add digging and burrowing to the curriculum. They apprenticed their children to a badger and later joined the groundhogs and gophers to start a very successful private school. You know, that's what people do. You know, you don't have to uh, stretch to understand the meaning, you know, of uh, George Rivas's little fable. The same well-intentioned attempt to establish standards for what it means to be, you know, a good Christian are epidemic in the Christian church. And there's a tremendous danger that there would be a loss of individuality and a realization that God has blessed and prospered you differently. And there becomes a a lack of authenticity, too, when you try to do something you're not especially gifted at, as though, you know, that is the means by which you express best your Christian faith. And, And there's something about us that we all realize that this is true. You know, if we say he's a fine Christian or or that was the Christian thing to do. We have a sense. We kind of know what that means. You know, a good Christian, we know, doesn't drink in excess, or maybe not at all. Doesn't smoke. Doesn't get body piercings. Certainly doesn't tattoo their body. Doesn't gamble. Doesn't stay out late. Doesn't like loud music. Doesn't see R-rated movies. And apparently has sex only to procreate. They don't cuss. Good Christians wear modest clothing, get appropriate haircuts, dress appropriately for church, have good manners, never experience anger behind the wheel, make good grades, pray before every meal, and especially at bedtime, either kneeling or bowing their head because somewhere that is written, and never miss church, not even on vacation. (laughs) Well, let me just in full disclosure explain uh, there is nothing wrong about deciding for yourself how best to express your faith and your values. But there's a danger in making behavior equivalent or uh, synonymous with being a Christian. And that's what Paul was concerned about when he wrote the third chapter in his letter to the churches at Galatia. That they understood initially what it meant to be a Christian, but somewhere the longer they became Christians, there was a transfer that took place until it became more about behavior than about a relationship. Well, let's begin by looking at Galatians chapter 3. You can look at the Bible in front of you. You can open up your um, smart device and go to uh, the Bible app and choose on a live event. It'll pop up, or you can just follow with me here on the TV. Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus was clearly taught to you, portrayed by us as one who was crucified for you. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive this message, the spirit of faith, this, this understanding of Christianity? By rules and works of the law, by expectations that you must accomplish? Or was it by believing in what you heard us say? Are you so foolish, after beginning by means of the Spirit, you are now trying to finish by means of the flesh? 
have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? Paul said, who bewitched you? It's an interesting phrase that he used. It's a hopox logo menonon. You know, it's a, just to prove that I took theology one time. It's a word that appears only once in the entire Bible. And that's not a word that Paul would have used among the Jewish people in Palestine. It's a word that is found only here, this word of being bewitched, because it translates who captured your attention, who seduced you, you know, who cast an eye on you, who, who took you from what you knew and began to warp it in something that you did not know. Now, uh, Paul was writing to a people who lived in a pagan society. And in Istanbul and Constantinople, its modern name, or, or even in Ephesus, there were temples that were there for pagan worship. And uh, in pagan worship, there were temple prostitutes so that, that people actually worshipped through uh, a salacious action. And they were bewitched, they were enticed, and they were seduced. And, and, and this is the means by which they worship pagan gods. And Paul uses that term to say, have you fallen prey to that kind of thinking? You know, have you had your head turned? You were squared away. When did you take a wrong turn and how did that happen? Because true faith is not about your behavior. It's not about a standard. It's not about how you appear. It's about a relationship. It's not about rules. And this is really the distinctive between Christianity and every other faith. I I don't care what faith it is. Every other faith will tell you, either philosophically or by a list of things that you are to accomplish, goals that have been set for you, uh, parables that, that teach truth, they will teach you a behavior that you must engage in order to please God. You know, you, you must visit holy sites. You must behave in a certain way. You must wear a certain dress. And if you don't, you'll be severely chastened. You know, there's a behavior uh, that you should avoid, and there's behavior that you should engage in order to be pleasing to God. Every other faith, you name it, will teach you that. But the Christian faith is unique in this. It is a historic account from creation until present day of what God has done to make you pleasing. Not what you must do to please God, but what God has done to make you pleasing. What God has done by grace to bring you into a relationship with him. But there's something in the human condition that turns everything into a validation of worth. I've just got to say straight up, there is no such thing as a better or worse Christian. You are either a Christian or you are not. Either you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and are made perfect through the righteousness, the forgiveness, the complete redemption that is provided by grace through faith, or you are not. There's no such thing as a better or a worse Christian. Now, I think it is proper to talk about mature Christians or immature Christians. And, and theologians would say this is a matter of justification. You're either a Christian or not Christian. You're either perfected, justified, or not. This is a matter of sanctification. This is, this is the level of maturity that is demonstrated Uh, in your life as you grow closer to the Lord. So we're not against growing closer to the Lord, and there are means by which you can do that. 
but that won't make him love you more and your behavior uh, if it is uh, apart from his desire for you won't make him love you less you know foolish galatians who bewitched you who turned your mind from knowing that you are totally accepted by god to a behavior that you strive to become accepted to god and the thing about this teaching uh, as paul reveals it to the galatians is there's a greater danger the longer that you are a christian uh, that you would suffer this confusion we just had uh, Anne Marie came up and told us about the, the summit that is upcoming. And this uh, has been sponsored uh, for its duration, I'm sure probably 20 years now, uh, out of a church uh, in uh, northern Illinois, uh, Willow Creek Church. And, and you heard Pastor Bill Hybels up there who has organized it. It's not just for Christian leaders. Uh, it's also for people who are Christian who are running various organizations or just people who want to... Uh, manage their families better or live uh, a better and more fulfilled life. They bring other Christians who have success in life to share with us and, and, and teach us. And I remember attending one of those sessions. By the way, you don't have to go to Chicago. You know, that's live cast to various places. In fact, um, uh, we experience it right here in town, and, and hundreds of people join with us, and it's a great experience. We welcome you to join our staff in attending it locally. Uh, but I remember uh, attending one of those sessions uh, years ago, and I, re- I remember one of those moments that you just kind of, you can almost see yourself sitting there uh, when Bill Hybels, who was teaching that day, uh, said, those of you who are competent, let me talk to those of you who have had some success in life. There's a great danger in your success. And so I would say to those of you who have been Christian a long time, there's a great danger in being a Christian a long time. He said, because you will begin to trust your competence and not your relationship to God. You won't continue to need him the way that you needed him in the past because you'll know instinctively by experience and all the history that you have in leading what you should do in a given situation. And that is not better, that is weaker. When you no longer have just a a passionate need for God to bless you because you're beyond your ability. You are always beyond your ability. And then there was another time uh, in Florida when I was attending a conference, uh, a growing church conference. I remember one of our speakers saying to pastors, you know, you have some things working for you right now, some programs and, 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 and some attitudes uh, that, are, that are really working in your congregation. Someday those won't work for you. You, in fact, may see them still working in other churches, but they won't work for you. You know why? God's going to take them away from you because he wants you to trust him, not your programs. And I just thought, man, i got to remember that. It's still always about a relationship. It's not even about being wise. It's not always about following the rules. It's not always doing the proven thing. And it reminded me, I, I spent uh, six years of my ministry in the South, right down in the Bible Belt, and it reminded me of a request that was often made of me for funeral services to, Pastor, please would you at the funeral for my mom or, or my child or uh, the one I love, would you, would you play its level at the foot of the cross? Now, that's not in the Lutheran hymnal. I didn't grow up singing that song. I didn't know there was such a song. But uh, we did sing it a few times. And I love the idea that you either are or are not saved. It has nothing to do with, you know, how fine of a Christian you are or how wealthy you are or how successful you are. It's just level at the foot of the cross. I thought I would share it with you, just one verse. You may know, you may own earth's silver, have riches untold, But all of earth's wealth, my friend, won't save your soul. You may live in a mansion, 
all the world know your name, but at the foot of the cross, my friend, everyone stands the same. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Anyone may come there, for there is no cost. Rich man or poor man, bonded or free, the ground was leveled that day at Calvary. You know, God gave us all we needed in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, let's continue with the reading, uh, picking it up at uh, verse 5. Paul continues, so again I ask, has God given you your spirit and he's worked miracles among you because you were doing 70 fine things by the works of the law? Or was it because you believed what you heard? So also Abraham, he says, you know, this is not a new thing. This is even the Old Testament understanding of grace as displayed through faith in God. So also Abraham believed God. And that was what was credited to him as righteous. Not the fact that he was a great leader. Not the fact that, uh, you know, the Lord blessed him in special ways. He blessed him because he had this relationship of faith. Understand then that those who have faith continue to be children of Abraham. You know, us. Scripture foresaw that God would justify even the Gentiles by faith. Jews are not more special in God's sight than Gentiles when they've been justified by faith. And he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations, he said, will be blessed. All people, Jews and non-Jews, through you, Abraham, through the faith you display. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, who was the man of faith. Two things happen when you change the Christian faith into behavior rather than an understanding of God's grace and an understanding of God's acceptance uh, based on the cross and your belief in it. First of all, you begin to doubt your standing with God. I don't care if it's the example of someone else that you're comparing yourself to, or if it's the uh, standard that God has established in his word, you know, when you read it, you'll say, oh, I'm not the Christian I need to be. I got to work harder, you know. The duck isn't good at running, so he has to give up swimming and start running more. You'll have to start doing things where you lack and you lack and you lack, and, and you'll never achieve that standard. You just simply won't. You'll begin to doubt your standing with God. Uh, Emery talked about uh, the awesome experience that we get to see with compromands. And I, I love our student teachers. Don't you love them? Uh, Chris Toomey and Poor are doing such an incredible job. And, and um, uh, that whole, uh, all the mentors that work with our kids, we put them in small groups and they have an adult with them. And it, it's just incredible. And, and it's not just about learning anymore. You don't, you're not saved by knowing the Bible better. It's all about a relationship, and, and uh, they help them understand there are, there are things that God wants you to know, and, and they do make your life better, and, and they avail you to uh, blessings, but it's about a primary relationship. But even young people can get the idea that, you know, there's a Christian behavior or standard that you must attain. One of our students uh, in his testimony said this. He said, God and I used to be on foreign ground. We would never talk. Didn't trust each other didn't look up to each other. But I know I'm not normal. I don't have the same feelings about things that others do. And so he was feeling isolated. He was feeling distant, you know, from Christ and from what it means to be Christian. I worry about the slightest things. 
I tend to be sensitive, especially about myself. You see, I feel that I have to do what is right all the time, even when I know it's impossible. You know, equating the danger of equating faith to a certain standard of behavior. And so he began to feel that, you know, he wasn't acceptable. This led me down the path to doubt. I kept doubting myself. I just wished I knew a way out. And yet it was always there right under my nose. And eventually I, fought, I found it. I saw it. It was just a relationship with God. When I took communion for the first time, I felt like I was finally clean. Clean of my sin, anxiety, sensitivity, clean of my worry. Now I know that I'm definitely not alone. Give God some praise. You know, it's, isn't that awesome? I mean, that somebody opened that door for him to understand that God has done this for you, man. Live your life in response, not in order to achieve some favor with God that he's already provided. So first of all, uh, when, you, when you make the Christian faith an action rather than a relationship, you, you suffer the possibility of doubt. We all will. Secondly, you unknowingly weaken or destroy your very Christian purpose. Your Christian purpose is to share Christ, you know, to, to be his person in the world and bring others to the knowledge of, of what he has revealed to you. Uh, and I don't think that's too strong, that you weaken or destroy your Christian purpose. I don't think that's too strong. Because when you compartmentalize your faith, like now I'm doing Christian things, and over here I'm doing secular things, over here I'm doing what it takes at work, but now I'm doing Christian activity, um, we end up playing a losing game. When I was a kid, uh, my dad and my pastor were, were friends. It was, it was the strangest odd couple for me to watch, you know, uh, because they had little in common uh, in the world. Uh, Pastor Shepman, I like Pastor Shepman. He's a very kind and, and caring person. And he, in my mind, of course, as a child, was the epitome of what it means to be a Christian man. He was soft-spoken. He was unathletic. My dad worked third trick. He, he worked 3 to 11. And, and so uh, uh, the pastor liked to golf, and my dad was an excellent athlete. Uh, and uh, was a, a very proficient golfer, and I would see them play together, and, and I thought, okay, this is how a Christian golfs, this is how my dad golfs, you know. And I'm just saying I would rather be like my dad than this epitome of a Christian man. Uh, he lacked common sense. The pastor had little common He didn't know how to do anything. My dad was constantly giving him advice. My dad was constantly working on things in the parsonage, constantly working on things, you know, in the school, uh, you know, giving up his time in that way to provide for the ministry of which we were a part. The pastor apparently enjoyed spending a lot of time with children. My dad tolerated children. Uh, the, pa <laughs> the pastor is, uh, apparently loved to spend a lot of time with women. He was always at women's meetings, you know. And my dad loved to be with men. I'd prefer to be with men as opposed to women, you know, who were all dressed up doing women things. Uh, my pastor dressed funny. He never got dirty, and he seemed to avoid all things physical. You know, that, just a child's perception, you know, of, of how it was. I'm not saying that was valid. My dad, on the other hand, was strong, athletic, respected by other men, confident, self-sufficient, not afraid of getting dirty, wore T-shirts, work pants, and could fix almost anything. You know, I really looked up to him, except when he did Christian things, because something happened then. He became kind of mild-mannered. He became kind of submissive. He was out of his element. He was obviously uncomfortable. So why did he do that? Because that was the Christian thing to do. Now, I don't fault my dad for doing Christian things. We needed his talents at the church. We needed his talents in the parsonage, you know. And, uh, and it was good that he took time to do that. But the danger is if he equated those things to doing his Christian duty, 
and he didn't realize his greatest Christian duty was to be himself all the time. That he had a, a pulpit that my pastor never would have. That he ran with a group of people that would never be in church. You know, and it was an opportunity for him to, to share Christ in his relationships. You, you don't now be a Christian, you don't now not be a Christian. His greatest Christian opportunities were to be a Christian in his own element, in his own way, among his own peer group. Well, let's continue with Galatians chapter 3. And I want to jump down to verse 24 because you might get the impression that behavior doesn't matter and that would be the wrong message. And Paul was concerned about that too. You know, behavior and learning more about God's expectation does matter. It won't make you better in the sight of God. But there is benefit to be had there. You know, we just, we just shared it in that Psalm 19 that said, God's laws are pure, eternal. They are desirable uh, like gold. They are sweeter than the honey dripping from the honeycomb. They warn us away from things that harm us. They give success to those who obey them. There's value there. It just won't make you a Christian or not a Christian. But after you are a Christian, you should consult them. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. In verse 24, he says, So the law has been our guardian until Christ came. You know, the law helped us see uh, Christ when he came. And it kept us thirsty for the answer to a problem that we could not fix ourselves. The law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under our guardian. You know, we don't need that law in the same way. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. The law serves its purpose. In fact, um, Christian behavior has its place. Uh, The law serves its purpose in frustrating us. You know, when we see what God's expectations are uh, and we see our own immaturity, it drives us to a greater appreciation for Jesus. When I used to teach confirmation, I used the acronym SOS. The law shows us our sin. You know, like looking in a mirror. You know, when you see God's expectations and you uh, weigh yourself against those, you say, I will never get there on my own. Well, that's a good thing. You know, it was our guardian. It reminded us that we can't get there on our own. Even the Old Testament, uh, there is grace. Uh, David himself said, if you, Lord, kept track of sins, who could stand? Who could ever stand before you? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are honored. You know, uh, even in the Old Testament they understood that. And then I would say the SOS, the gospel shows us our Savior. The law is intended to remind us of our inadequacy. And then the gospel is intended to remind us of how God has made us adequate. It also informs us of our decisions. You know, if we want to know what pleases God, because what pleases God is to live a life that he intended. When we live the life that he intended, then we avail ourselves of a blessing of, our fav- of his favor. I know when a, when a child in your family uh, has it right and, and, and does things that you want to encourage, you prosper them in that way. When they do things that are wrong and are self-destructive or destructive of others, you probably will find a way to frustrate that behavior. And so will God. And so the law, as we uh, now are saved, we study his word because we want that favor in our life. We want to be encouraged, you know, for his benefit, for the benefit of others, and also for our benefit. It guides us to blessing. That's the difference between immaturity and being mature. And I've got to say that uh, how long you're in the church has nothing to do with your maturity. We've, We've known Christians who have been in the church all their life and still act very immature. 
you know, they've not fully developed and, and continued to learn the lessons that God would provide for them to understand. So we should all want to be more mature, more useful, able to carry more responsibility for him as we move forward. It won't make us better, won't make us more acceptable to him, uh, but it will make us more useful in the kingdom. Well, let me just wrap up with uh, a few takeaways here uh, from this chapter. First of all, let's remember that uh, our standing with God is based on a relationship, not rules. You won't make yourself a better Christian. And there is no such thing, you know, quit making people feel uncomfortable. Uh, one time here, it happened a number of years ago, but I remember a well-intentioned usher. And uh, I'm sure it was hard for him to do, and he did it only because he thought it was right. Uh, came forward and uh, tapped a man on the shoulder, and he said, Sir, you're in church. You're either going to have to take that hat off or you're going to have to leave. And, uh, you know, because in his mind, that was showing respect. And this man was showing disrespect in church. And, and so, well-intentioned, but so misguided. I don't, I don't care if that guy still didn't even know Jesus, you know, that he was here in church. So let's not pass judgment on others. I could tell you a lot more stories like that, but I need to move on. But let's not make it about relationship. You know, I'm glad if people who dress differently than me come to church, you know, and, and I don't pass judgment on them. I cannot see their heart. Somebody who looks all squared away may be a mess, may not believe anything. And somebody who looks a mess may be all squared away. It's not about rules. It's about a relationship. And let's merge, not separate our faith and life. In fact, uh, the tagline for this church is that uh, we serve at the intersection of faith and life. You know, you won't just come and hear more about God and, and know the Bible better when you leave here. Hopefully there are real issues in life that we will address. Because I don't want you to become like my father and do Christian work over here and then do your secular work over here. I want you to merge the two. I want you to realize that you have a unique station in life that no one else has. You have relationships, family relationships, extended family relationships, collegial relationships that no one else has. And you are God's person in that place. By merging your faith, you have a unique and powerful position to share Christ by being who you are. You know, not cleaning it up, uh, but by allowing Christ to be authentic in your life. Third, bloom where you are planted. You know, be Christ in the place where you are. Now, I could use examples for myself, but it just makes me sound arrogant and, and holier than you, and, and I'm not. Uh, I might be arrogant. I'm not holier than you. Uh, you be the judge of that. Talk to my wife. She'll say, occasionally you are. Uh, but, uh, Pastor, let me use Pastor Shudi as an example. Now, Pastor Shudio is a, is a part of a club that he calls the Romeo Club. Uh, you might know what that is. Uh, it's uh, retired old men eating out. Uh, and uh, his term, not mine, it's a term I've heard before. But he, he goes down to the Eureka McDonald's uh, once or twice a week. And there's, if you've ever been at McDonald's early, you'll see these Romeo groups. Uh, no one has organized them. I don't think they have a union. I don't think they have a national charter. Uh, but but they, they just gather there because they have good coffee and it's cheap for retired people. And they'll sit there and they'll talk and encourage each other. And it's interesting that he's there because he's a retired old man. And, uh, and he eats out. And, and he didn't go there to be a pastor. He didn't organize the group. He just joined the group. Somebody invited him. He didn't say, I'm Pastor Shooty. He just said, I'm Ron Shooty. Uh, but his faith became obvious over time. And now he's become kind of the unofficial chaplain for that group, you know. It wasn't something we asked him to do. It wasn't something his church asked him to do. It was just something that he did. And so uh, he belongs to that group by virtue of his life. 
And he's become a Christian in that, vir- that group by virtue of his life. Now, let me just tell you another quick story. Uh, we have a, a fellow in the church that I've really come to love and appreciate. And, and he's, he's a golf pro. That should not surprise you uh, uh, that, I would, that I would get to know him. And uh, uh, about a year or two ago, I, I baptized him. He was a part of a, of a group that taught that Jesus uh, was real and, and lived on earth. And, and he became an example, a model that we should follow. And if we follow uh, that model and that example, then we can be holy in God's sight too. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ made you perfect. He didn't provide an example for you to earn your way to be perfect. And he was a part of that group. And, and, and uh, his wife was a Christian and continued to witness to him. And eventually he saw the difference. And he wanted to accept Jesus Christ as the one who made him perfect, not the one who gave him an example. And, and so he was baptized here. Now, uh, he is in his first position as a senior golf pro, and he's a fairly new baptized Christian. You know what this man did? He, he decided, he didn't know any better, he decided that he would invite all the other senior golf pros and uh, the, the uh, Metro uh, uh, PGA Association leaders uh, to come to a Bible study. Now, he's a fairly new Christian, and he's going to facilitate a Bible study with people who maybe have been Christian all their life. And he's also fairly new to that niche of senior professionals. And uh, he invited me to tag along, and I thought, well, it might lead to a free invitation to play golf at one of the nice clubs. So uh, <laughs> that's not true. That's not why I went. And, and uh, in fact, I told him, you know, it may, I may be a wet blanket there if you invite me. But... Uh, but he had these guys to come, come together, and so I came, and uh, it was incredible that the head pro from Belle Reve, the head pro from Whitmore, the head pro from Meadowbrook, uh, all these head pros came, and the, the guy who leads the PGA in town came, and, and they talked about people they were witnessing to, and they encouraged each other in their profession, and it was just awesome to see, and I was just, I'm just so proud of him, and I'm amazed, and you can do that. He didn't say, Pastor, what job could I do in the church? He said, how can I bloom where I'm planted? You know, I have these relationships already. And so now these guys meet monthly and they encourage each other. And, uh, and they pray and work with other uh, PGA professional people to bring them to know Jesus. Isn't that awesome? I'm just so proud of that kind of behavior. And last, last, grow up for God's sake. You know, don't be satisfied with just being justified. You know, Paul went on to say, you know, or study the word. Because you can mature more. And, and to your benefit, you know, the honey that drips from the honeycomb. And, and you can avoid difficulty and you can find favor, you know, by learning more about God. Because that's the man who made you. He understands how life works best. So come not to be pleasing to him, but be, come because he can give you good counsel and advice for the issues in your life. That's it. We're going to pick it up next week and continue with.